Good morning, Northbrook. It's good to be here with you this week. Last week we weren't together, but uh, trust that God encouraged you through His Word last week. I'll be in Hebrews 5 this morning, if you want to open it up. The good thing about being sick this week is that I had an easy passage in Hebrews 5, and I say that very sarcastically. This is uh, one of the more difficult passages in Hebrews and I, I uh, hope I do it justice and hope that you can follow my uh, uh, line of thought. I don't think it's possible to do God's Word justice, so I should probably should uh, rephrase that. Hopefully I'll be competent with it, and um, uh, hopefully God will use it in our lives. I'd like to begin reading, actually, in verse 14, where we were last week of Hebrews 4. And we'll read down through verse 10 of Hebrews 5. We're going to look at a couple other passages along with this this morning later. But for now, we'll read Hebrews 4, 14 through 5, 10. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. <coughs> Excuse me. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. For hundreds of years, since the time of Moses and Aaron, the people of Israel, the Jews, and I'll say the Hebrews, because I talked to somebody recently who said for a number of years they didn't realize the Hebrew people, the Jews, and the Israelites were all the same people. They thought they were three different groups. And uh, so I want to clarify that just in case there's anybody else uh, that would think in that way. But the, the Jews, for throughout that time since Moses and Aaron, had worshipped God through the vehicle of sacrifice. And I think you're all fairly familiar with that process. But the, the process works so that blood was obtained through the death of animals, that blood was offered in faith by the worshiper, and that blood was required 
in order to pay for the penalty of sin of the sinner and to provide reconciliation with God. But in this system of sacrifice, a mediator, a priest was required. No individual in the Old Covenant was allowed to go directly to God. They had to have a mediator, a priest, who went between man and God. And this priest was chosen by God. Nobody got to stand up one day and say, I am going to be the priest. Uh, the, The people didn't choose this person. Moses didn't choose this person. God chose Aaron. He chose descendants of the tribe of Levi, and then he chose descendants of Aaron himself and, and Aaron's direct descendants. Those people were allowed to approach God on behalf of the sinner seeking reconciliation, and no one else was allowed to. If you remember some of the stories from the Old Testament, but in particular Numbers, remember, remember Korah? who wanted to act as priests. And, and Moses talked to God about it, and God said, tell them to show up with these censers, and we'll see who's going to be priests. They show up the next day, and all that's left is melted silver from their censers and amongst their ashes. Because God was the one who decided who was going to be the priest. God didn't allow anyone else besides Aaron and his direct descendants to, to serve as mediators. Not only would it bring death to the pretender who wanted to be priest, but it would also invalidate the offering of the individual. And to have been chosen and to serve as priest, especially the high priest, on behalf of the people was a privileged and honored position, but it was a weighty responsibility. Here in, in Hebrews chapter 5, he speaks of the honor of it. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God. But you know, I think, so I was thinking about this. I thought, we don't do animal sacrifices anymore. We're really disconnected from what they did. I know uh, when we lived in Tama, I was told that they, uh, on the person who told me this is very uh, credible, but the Meskwaki tribe that's out there on the settlement where the casino is in that area are considered the most traditional group of Native Americans in North America. And what that means is they are most traditional in relation to their religious worship. And I was told that they still do animal sacrifices out there. And uh, again, whether or not that's fully true, I don't know, but at least for some time they did. Their, their whole system is structured. If it's explained to you, you probably have the same response I would, and that is they're Jewish people. Their whole system is structured like the Old Testament sacrificial system with priestly class and, um, and, a, and a main person who oversees that. So they might understand and and relate better to some of this than we do, but for us, we're so disconnected from animal sacrifices and it seems repulsive to us. And if if we're presented with the truth that Jesus is our high priest before God, most of us 
will, especially Christians, will pretty readily accept that idea. Okay, Jesus is my high priest. Okay, that, that's nice. Um, he goes on my behalf before God. That's nice. And then we, we kind of mentally file that away as another story or another fact from the Bible. And we, we just kind of store it as information that's valid. To read Hebrews 5 as I did and talk about Jesus being a high priest, it's just kind of like, okay, not quite sure what all that means, but okay. But to the original readers of Hebrews, as the writer wrote to Jewish people who were raised in this system of animal sacrifice and knew the requirements for the priest, both from their genealogy requirements and from the whole cultic system that they were part of. This is incredibly out of bounds and should be rejected immediately. To walk up to an observant Jew in that time and say to them, Jesus is now God's high priest, would have been a slap in the face to everything that the Old Covenant taught. Jesus was from what tribe? This is a softball question this morning. Judah. What tribe did a priest have to be from? Levi. So to say to a Jew, after Matthew has clearly made the case that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David, to say to him, Jesus is now God's great high priest, would have rebuffed everything they've ever been taught. It's heresy. And secondly, Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. It didn't go very well in the story of Israel when a king tried to offer incense as a priest. That, those were two offices that were separated from the beginning of the Old Covenant. There's this guy named Uzziah. Remember him? And he decided he was going to bypass the priests and go directly to God himself. And he was disgraced and given leprosy. So this whole argument here, that this, that this one who is a king and this one who is from the tribe of Judah is now our high priest before God is crazy. And this letter is addressed to the Hebrews. And he's arguing that Jesus is our high priest. This was not just a radical idea. It was completely out of bounds. Jesus did not meet the qualifications required by God himself. And so what the author argues here really is critical 
This is a pivotal point in the letter to Hebrew uh, to the Hebrews, and it's a pivotal point in the letter to us today. It's critical to the whole idea of Jesus as a mediator, as Jesus as a priest with God. As we're told elsewhere, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus. Our whole idea of the sacrifice on the cross is of Jesus offering himself as the sacrifice, as a priest before God, as the high priest before God, offering himself as a sacrifice. And if all of that is to stand, then it has to be true that Jesus is actually a high priest from the tribe of Judah, who's also a king, which is unacceptable. So my point in that is that all of our hopes as a Christian, this isn't just something for the early Hebrews to to adopt and accept that went against what they've been taught, but all of our hopes as Christians in the area of acceptance with God, stands or falls on this issue of Jesus' qualifications. If he's not qualified, it's a house of cards that comes down. We have no mediator with God. We have no acceptance with God. We have no reconciliation with God if Jesus is not qualified to serve as a priest. And if Jesus is not qualified to serve as a priest, Christianity is a sham. Now, I hope you understand, I don't think Christianity is a sham. If I thought Christianity was a sham, I would not have gotten out of bed this morning, especially after this last week. And I would not have given my life to what I do if I thought Christianity is a sham. But the reality is, we have to make the case that Jesus actually is qualified as our mediator. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is going to do. And he's going to actually go towards some Old Testament passages to make that case. God set a precedent. long ago before the old covenant he set a precedent for what the writer of Hebrews here has to say everything I've just said about the priests and the kings has a boundary in order to be a priest before God God established a boundary delineating his expectations. And that boundary that I want to point out is called the Old Testament. When God established the Old Testament or the Old Covenant, and I'm not speaking in terms of the Old Testament being Genesis to Malachi. I'm speaking in terms of the Old Testament referring to the Old Covenant. When God established the Old Covenant with Moses and the people of Israel, 
He set up structures and standards and boundaries and laws. Within that structure was where he established the Aaronic priesthood. That it had to come from the tribe of Levi. It had to come from a descendant of Aaron. That was within the boundary of the Old Testament. But here what's going to happen in Hebrews 5 is the writer of Hebrews is going to move outside of the boundary of the Old Covenant and show us that God already established a precedent for both a priesthood that did not come from Aaron and a king who was also a priest. And in order to make his case, he's going to pull from two passages. The first one is from Psalm 2, where he quotes in verse 5, So Christ did not exalt himself to be a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2. And in verse 6, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110. So what I could like to do is follow his argument from Psalm 2 and from Psalm 110 and then come back to Hebrews chapter 5. So let's begin first in Psalm 2 and see how the author structures his arguments in relation to Jesus being our mediator. So if you'd like to turn to Psalm 2, I'm going to take off my coat because I'm getting hot. You're probably all cold. So I want you to know that the weather outside is frightful. <laughs> but this is normal first week of February in the north woods of Wisconsin. So if you're feeling sorry for yourself today, I'm, I'm going to one-up you. I did 16 years of this. The level of snow on the ground, the temperatures outside, and the snowpack on the roads... This is Northwoods of Wisconsin every single year. And you have no hope, just put yourself in this place, you have no hope of anything really changing until the end of March. It might get a little bit warm in there, 20 degrees, um, but the snow is going to be with you until the end of March. I was saying to Terry the other day, he says, you remember when it would hit 20 degrees outside? and all the kids would start throwing on shorts and t-shirts because it felt so much warmer. And they'd run around campus that way in their shorts and their t-shirts because they thought it was warm because their bodies had acclimated to below zero temperatures and below zero wind chills. I remember one year, uh, third week of January, the window, we were living in a mobile home and we had huge winds one night and it actually blew the windows out of our living room in our mobile home. And uh, I had to get a mattress and put it up against the window. I put a piece of plywood and a mattress up against it. But the wind chills that night were 80 below. So this is, uh, that's, that's when 20 degrees starts to feel like tropical and really nice. Psalm 2, that was to wake you back up. I'm, I'm having a hard time this morning, and you're having a hard time this morning. And we're, we're uh, worshiping like good old-fashioned Methodists and uh, very somber and staid and staring. So, actually, you're doing fine. Psalm 2. Let's read Psalm 2 together. It's a familiar one, I think. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves 
and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, his chosen one, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his further fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This short psalm, I'm not going to take it apart this morning. I'm just going to make the main point that the author of Hebrews is trying to make. This short psalm points us as readers to the fact that God rules sovereignly. And he rules not only sovereignly, he rules unthreatened by his enemies over his creation. He's not worried about them at all. He laughs at them when they shake their fist at him. And he's not laughing at happiness, he's laughing in derision. He mocks them when they think that they can rise up against him. And God does this rule through a human king. He says, I've put my anointed one on a throne. I've set him in a place called Zion. This, this chosen one of God who actually is God's son, rules from Zion. He rules from Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is known as the place of God's dwelling. Eventually the temple will be built there. It's the place of God's dwelling. It's the place where people go to meet with God and to worship God. And that this son, who is completely sovereign and completely powerful, who laughs at anyone who would threaten him, rules in judgment over the enemies of God. And this was a very important psalm to the Jewish people. Even before the time of Jesus, going back to really during the time after the captivity up till the time of Jesus, there are writings from rabbis of that time who very strongly link Psalm 2 to the coming Messiah, the promised one, who's going to come and rescue Israel. They understood that this person who is the Son of God would come and would rule in power over Israel's enemies. I want you to keep these key ideas from Psalm 2 in your mind. Kingship, a son, one who's anointed by God, one who rules in sovereign judgment from Zion and God's lives in God's dwelling place. I want you to kind of file that into your mental folder and go to Psalm 110. So the first point that the author is going to make in Hebrews 5 is that this one is God's son. And all that comes with that in Psalm 2, he's making the case for. He's a king. 
He's sovereign, all those things. Now Psalm 110, another one that I think is familiar to you. And this is the Psalm of David. It's written by him. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs. This might be a prediction about the Super Bowl tonight. I just thought of that as I was reading that. Seriously. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. David, again, writes of a powerful king who is going to rule from Zion. And he's been chosen from God, chosen by God, to rule and to judge the enemies of God. But David, as he writes this, puts in a couple of new pieces of information from what we got in Psalm chapter 2. The first piece tells us that, that this king will not only rule from where God dwells, Zion or Jerusalem, but that this king will be seated at the right hand of God. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. This king, this coming one, this powerful sovereign ruler, not only rules in the place where God dwells, he sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. But the second bit of information is really radical. Now, again, keep in mind, David, this is David writing. He's the second king of Israel, and he's not writing about himself. And he has to know he's not writing about himself. And he's writing within the boundaries of the Old Covenant. So he throws out this piece of information that is just off the charts. That this king is also appointed by God as a priest. David has to know this is not about him because he's not a priest. He can't be a priest. He's from the tribe of Judah. And he can't be a priest because he's a king. They're separate offices. And they have to be kept as separate offices. So David is writing about, he has to know he's writing about somebody in the future. Somebody yet to come. But he's writing about a priest king from within the boundaries of the old covenant that does not allow this. But to do so, to talk about this priest king, David actually prophesies within the boundaries of the old covenant of a coming priest king in the future beyond the boundaries of the old covenant 
As long as the old covenant stays in place, this can never happen. So when David prophesies about this coming priest king, it means that the old covenant is going to end. He has to recognize that. In some way, he has to realize that the boundaries that are in place right now are going to end. But he pulls from before the covenant to write about something beyond the covenant while he's in the middle of the covenant. If you follow that. It's an amazing thing that David does here and should have been rejected out of hand by the Jews. But they didn't. And again, the Jewish scholars, the Jewish rabbis, where we can find their writings, even with the writings, if you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumran, uh, that cult that existed, lived up in the, in the caves above the Dead Sea, they actually wrote from Psalm 110 about this coming priest king. But to accept that would be to violate the law. But God, through the Holy Spirit, directs David to write about a person and directs him to pull from a precedent that God had just kind of dropped out there in order to make the case from before the Old Covenant establishment. He says that this person who serves as the most powerful king of Israel and rules over the entire earth is also a priest appointed by God forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what do you know about Melchizedek? As David drops this name out there, what's supposed to come to your mind? We really don't know much about him. He was a guy who showed up on the scene We're told that he was the king of Salem, that he was a priest before God, and Abraham offered tithes to him. That's about it. But what David is saying here is not only that there is a king priest to come, but that a new priestly line will be established. David is telling us what, you know, here's the thing to me with the story of the Bible that's so fascinating, is is there's no unimportant part to the story. I mean, this this guy shows up, Abraham's coming back from from a battle that he's victorious, And this guy shows up. Abraham meets him. We're just given these little bits of information about him. It's it's one of those it's one of those throwaway passages, maybe you'd call it in a book. You know, the author throws some information in there, especially in a mystery or detective type deal. They throw it in there sometimes to throw you off, to get you over here when you're supposed to be here. But it seems like throwaway information. So Abraham offered ties to Melchizedek. Great. And you never hear of him again. 
until you get to Psalm 110. But God was actually establishing what I, again, call a precedent of a king-priest that he's going to pick up on hundreds of years later. Abraham has existed over 400 years prior to the establishment of the Old Covenant. David's a ways into it himself, into the Old Covenant. And God drops this nugget of information about this righteous king named Melchizedek who has no parents, don't know what his beginning is, we don't know what his end is. He's the king of Salem, which is, most people believe, another name for Jerusalem. He's the king of peace. He's worthy of having offerings offered to him. He's worthy of worship. He's a combination of a king-priest, which is unheard of in the Jewish world. And David says, God is going to establish a chosen one to sit on the throne at his right hand in Jerusalem, who's a king-priest. Now let me throw out another little passage to you that the writer of Hebrews doesn't mention. In Exodus 19, what's Exodus 20? Anybody here know this morning what Exodus 20 is? Wake up your brains again. What happens in Exodus 20? The Ten Commandments. Moses in Exodus 19 begins to meet with the leaders of the people. And he reads to them, tells them what God expects. And they say, we're going to do it. And then he meets with the people. And he proclaims to them what we call the Ten Commandments, God's law. And at the end of that, he calls the people to obedience. And they say, we will do all of this. And at that point, they're sprinkled with blood and the covenant is sealed. But in Exodus 19, as he speaks to the leaders of the people, the elders of the people, he says to them, this is what God says. Remember that little, hear his voice. This is what God says. If you obey me, you will be to me a chosen people, a precious possession, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. Before the covenant, the last moments before the covenant is stated, God says through Moses, he speaks of a kingdom of priests. You know where that comes up again? 1 Peter chapter 2. As Peter writes to believers, he speaks of a chief cornerstone set in Jerusalem. And that chief cornerstone is a stone of stumbling to the Jewish people. But he says to believers, you are, he doesn't say you will be, he says you are a chosen people, a holy nation a royal priesthood. God's treasured possession. Peter, in his first letter, pulls from one of the last statements before the covenant is established. 
and that and he says this now has come to fulfillment in believers today and he speaks of a royal priesthood king priests okay keep all that in mind and I want us to go back to Hebrews chapter 5 read what he has to say in verse 4 no one takes this honor for himself but only when called by God just as Aaron was so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a priest to be made a high priest but was appointed by him who said to him you are my son today I have begotten you That's Psalm 2, speaking of the Son of God who will be the royal ruler, the king who destroys God's enemies and brings judgment. As he also says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, the king priest. The precedent was set before the old covenant was established. The promise of a royal priesthood was given before the Old Covenant was established. Under the Old Covenant, there was a prophecy of a king priest who would come after the order of Melchizedek. And what he's pulling together here from the Jews' own writings from the Psalms, undisputed turf in the Bible of the Jews. He is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of both prophecies in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110. That Jesus is the Son of God, chosen by God Himself, anointed and exalted to the right hand of God to reign as king and anointed as the great high priest for the people of God. That this promised one who would come from a different priestly line as prophesied by David, not the line of Aaron, but from the line of Melchizedek, This one will judge the enemies of God and will mercifully plead on behalf of the people with whom God has established a new covenant. This is one of the major arguments of Hebrews is that there has been a new covenant established And in this new covenant now, there is a king. And with this new covenant, there is a priest. And it is the same person as prophesied in the Old Testament. As I was studying, as I've been studying Hebrews again, 
and trying to get the bigger picture of Hebrews. Hebrews is a, it, it, it's a tough book to work through as someone trying to teach it, and it's a tough book to think through as an individual, I think, because the, the argument just continues and builds and gets complicated. But as, I was, as I've been going through Hebrews again, my mind keeps going back to Galatians. There's this very close connection between the arguments in Galatians and the arguments in Hebrews. The arguments in Galatians are, the argument in Galatians is, the old covenant is over. It's done. Leave it in the past. It's the old covenant. This is the new covenant. This is how things work now. Don't go back to the old covenant. It's deadly. Don't go there. It had its purpose. It was glorious in its place. But it's done. Do not go back there. Stay in the new covenant. Follow Christ. Cling to Christ. And the writer of Hebrews is doing the same thing. The reason he's arguing that Jesus is superior because Jesus is the initiator of the new covenant. And he is the king who rules over the new covenant. And he is the priest and the mediator of the new covenant. Do not go back. That's the, that's the whole argument. And because the other part of it, so to speak, it's not the whole thing, the other part of it is because of the new covenant, because of who your king is, because of who the, uh, your, your priest is, because of all that you have in Jesus, understand that he is superior and keep going. Don't quit. He wants them and he wants us to understand that this king priest has been chosen by God to be the sacrifice that establishes the new covenant with God's people. And he establishes that new covenant through his death and his burial, and his resurrection. Just as the old covenant was established by blood, this new covenant was established by blood. But this is not an animal. This is the high priest Jesus, our mediator, offering himself as the lamb. His blood established the new covenant. His resurrection and victory over death ensures that his reign and his mediation is eternal. We'll talk about this more as we move into this idea of the priesthood and what they did. But when a priest died, his mediation ended and a new priest had to be established. And everything for the people hinged on that mediator's work on their behalf. So when he says here that this new king priest is after the order of Melchizedek, his point is he is eternal. You are a priest forever. This Priestly, this priest's medita- uh, mediation never ends. What he has accomplished cannot be undone 
because he never dies. What he established in the New Covenant stands forever. I'm going to stop there for this morning. We have some more to look at in verses 7 to 10. But let me just leave you with this this morning. Jesus is fully qualified to serve as our mediator and to serve as our king under the new covenant, prophesied by David. David didn't say there will be a new covenant, but he said there would be a new king who will also be a new priest in the future after one that God set up as the precedent hundreds of years before. So, so two things out of that. One is, I guess a question, does your faith rest in Jesus? Because he is the only mediator between God and men. And the second thing that I would say to you is something that struck me a long time ago. The one who transcends time does not waste time. When we read these things in the Bible, we come across them and go, okay. See those things as God saying, I'm going to do something in the future that's so amazing, it'll blow your mind. Just wait. Trust me and wait. Wait for me to do what I'm going to do. There's a passage in the Old Testament where God says, I'm doing something that if I showed it to you, you wouldn't believe it. Now that sounds real positive, but what he's actually saying is a warning. And what I'm going to do is crush you. It's part of the judgment warnings to Israel. But I think it's true too that God is doing things that seem insignificant to us at times. They seem random to us. And he calls us to trust him that he's doing things that are beyond our ability to comprehend. Things that if he showed it to us, we'd just go. I, I... So in, in your day-to-day life as both pleasant and unpleasant things appear and they seem out of place. You can't fit them into the order of life that you've established. Trust God. See it as His hand accomplishing things that might go far beyond your lifetime. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for how You have sovereignly controlled the history of humanity for thousands of years. You do not waste time. You don't waste moments. As we look back on this really shadowy figure of Melchizedek that he just 
appears like blip on a radar. A seemingly random meeting of Abraham, who is the father of your people, at a time when he possesses nothing. He's a stranger and a sojourner in a land that's been promised, waiting for a son that's been promised, dealing with a stupid nephew who got himself into such trouble Abraham had to go rescue him. In the midst of all of that unsettledness for Abraham, you bring across his path this Melchizedek and Abraham worships him. And then Melchizedek is gone and Abraham never sees him again. A seemingly throwaway moment in a confusing situation. Yet all of these moments that just don't make sense, you are orchestrating and weaving together to do something beautiful and amazing and glorious. Help us to trust you in those things and help us then to see how you've woven all those things together to this point to bring about a new covenant a new covenant of grace with a merciful high priest one who is a king who reigns in power and majesty one who reigns in righteousness and justice and one who is also our mediator before you Thank you for opening my eyes to the reality of Jesus. Helping me to see who He is in His righteousness. Helping me to see my sin and my need of a mediator. And helping me to avoid the coming judgment. Father, I thank You for Your love and Your mercy. Help us as we go from here this morning to want to obey you, to want to be like Jesus, to want to be faithful. And I ask these things in your Son's name. Amen.